this yes. is hell. Okie doke. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell and the crimes that are behind the great fortunes made by the United States throughout its history are the crimes of indigenous genocide and the kidnapping and enslavement of Africans. This week, the United States is recognizing what it calls the first Thanksgiving, which is grounded in the myth of a 1620 or 1621, whatever you choose, festive meal bringing indigenous and colonists together in peace, including the sharing of native knowledge with the pilgrims, so the pilgrims could survive. The whole story makes it seem as if the invaders were welcomed with open arms. Of course, none of it's true. The first U.S. Thanksgiving was declared by President Abraham Lincoln in 1863 in an attempt to bring about national reconciliation during the Civil War. There was also another recognition of Thanksgiving back in 1769 when the pilgrims were trying, where people who are descendants of pilgrims were trying to bring in tourists to Plymouth. With that myth of Thanksgiving thoroughly entrenched, indigenous have responded by seeing Thursday as a national day of mourning for the loss of an old world instead of a celebration of thanks for a new one. Within those myths erased is the relationship and connectedness between indigenous and descendants of enslaved Africans. The logic goes, how can there be any common ground between native people and those of African descent? After all, one had their land stolen from them and the other was stolen from their land. But when you consider that both still embrace their indigenous cultures, one doing everything they can to protect theirs, protect theirs from invaders, uh, from settlers, while the other did everything they could to not leave theirs behind, both cultures can be seen as indigenous. It's indigenous genocide and African enslavement that are the foundations of the success of the United States and its brutal and cruel brand of capitalism. Without exploitation and dispossession, there would be no United States, at least not like the United States we recognize today. The reality is indigenous and Africans have been working together for a very long time and trying to disrupt and dismantle what the U.S. calls democracy, which clearly is not very democratic if it has led to genocide and slavery, the effects of which still continue right now. Yes, settler colonialism has been challenged by indigenous and Africans since long before Standing Rock and the movement for black lives. If any connection between indigenous and Africans is ever recognized by the imposition of whiteness, the example of native enslavement of Africans may come up. But a better understanding of the freed men of the five tribes, Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Creek, and Seminole, can give us a deeper insight into Afro-indigeneity. In a few minutes, we'll speak with Kyle T. Mays, author of An Afro-Indigenous History of the United States. Cal is an Afro-Indigenous writer and scholar of U.S. history, urban studies, race relations, and contemporary popular culture. He is Saginaw Chippewa. Kyle is an assistant professor of African American Studies, American Indian Studies, and the history of the United and history at the University of California, Los Angeles. He's also the author of Hip Hop Beats: Indigenous Rhymes, Modernity and hip-hop in indigenous North America. And if you do not get FNX, I'm sorry, you might be able to find it online, but if you do have it on your cable uh, service, FNX, First Nations uh, Television, uh, check out The Ox, which is an amazing uh, video show of all sorts of hip-hop and modern music when it comes to indigenous and North Americans. You can follow Kyle on Twitter at Maze underscore Kyle. 
Find out more about Kyle at his website, kyle-maze.com. And by the way, the aux is spelled A-U-X. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. It's Monday, so producing is Jess Lipka. Jess, how was your weekend? Anything new by you? I'm doing well. Um, I am coming up on um, grad school deadlines, application deadlines, so I'm just kind of doing my own thing right now. Um, Where have you applied? Well, I want to stay here, so, you know. <laughs> that's Northwest your top priority? UIC, UChicago. Yeah, at Chicago, that's where I want to be. At UChicago, so you don't even have to move out of the neighborhood. Uh, yeah, I'd like to be in the same house, yeah. <laughs> that would be nice, <laughs> yeah. not having to move. <laughs> yes. Moving sucks. It does, yeah. And now I know my na- I don't want to have to meet new neighbors, and I don't know. It's just, I, I like where I'm at. The last time I moved, I had to take a month off from the show. That's how much crap we have and what a pain in the ass it is. Oh, my God, I hate moving. Yeah, I don't have that much stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Don't. Do everything you can to not get stuff. The worst part about the holidays, I swear to God, is people give you all sorts of stuff that you don't have any place for it, and now it's got to sit in your house all the time. And then if they come over to your house, you have to have it on display, and if you don't, they're like, where is that egg-shaped piece of crystal I gave you that you had no need for 12 years ago? My weekend started out with my first doctor's appointment and first physical exam since before the pandemic. My six-month on-again, off-again cold turns out to be bronchitis, which means I'm now on an inhaler, I'm taking steroids, so if I seem a bit more angry this week than usual, please bear with me. Then, after spending most of the rest of the weekend preparing for family to visit from out of town for the holiday, we found out that, in fact, nobody is visiting us But instead, we're visiting them. In other words, rather than hosting as we were planning to do for months now, we're now traveling over 300 miles each way to see family. So again, if I seem a bit more angry this week than usual, please bear with me. But more importantly than my steroid and logistics-fueled anger, Jess, what's this week's question from hell? Um, this week's question from hell is the same as last week's question from hell. What job are you not applying for? What job are you not applying for? It's a rollover because last Wednesday's show was scan- was <laughs> canceled due to a scheduling mix-up that we had with our guest. That guest is going to be re- on the show instead next Thursday. We'll be telling you more about that later this week. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now. Our winter beanie, our trucker's cap, our coffee mug our tote bag, our t-shirts, our This Is Hell Flash Drive, which is a collection of interviews from this, the 21st century, a couple dozen interviews in there, as well as the This Is Hell medical face mask. You can find all that stuff by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us to, via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorch in the moment of truth, this week Jeff asks, aside from the way things are, what do we really have to complain about? Jess will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our question or conversation with Kyle Mays on his book in Afro-Indigenous History of the United States. Again, the question from hell is, 
What job are you not applying for? What job are you not applying for? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, this is hell. And Jess has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is allegedly the perfect hangover cure. The website of that awful London newspaper, The Sun, ran a story by food writer Terry Ann Williams with the headline, The Perfect Hangover Trick You Need to Know This Christmas. Terry Ann writes, If you've been boozing, it's likely, likely you'll wake craving junk food, but one expert says this is the last thing you should be reaching for. Registered nutritionist and founder of Renourish, uh, Nikki Clark, said instead of loading up on junk, junk from fast food outlets to perk yourself up after a heavy night, keep it clean. Nikki revealed exactly how to make the perfect drink to help you feel back on track. Nikki is quoted saying, blend together 30 milliliters of coconut water, a handful of kale, half a celery stick, a quarter of a cucumber, handful of rocket, and juice of half a lemon. Rocket is the British term for arugula. Who knew? I didn't know. No, no, no. <laughs> um, Nikki continues, this is the perfect hangover cure, as it is packed with antioxidants, vitamins, and hydration. Um, that the body and liver needs to get over that hangover. That makes this week's hangover cure the perfect hangover cure, with, which apparently is a smoothie of coconut water, kale, celery, cucumber, arugula, and lemon juice. Sounds pretty good, actually. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible, horrible business model. This is Helen. If you would like to support our horrible business model that puts you before profits, subscribe to our bonus weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell with streams live at 10 a.m. on Fridays usually, but we have a programming note for you in just a bit. Podcast shortly after it, patreon.com slash this is hell. On our most recent Patreon podcast, it's the holiday season again, so prepare for all sorts of cognitive dissonance, at least. That's what I'm doing. This is the time of the year that my beliefs rarely line up with my behavior, that my attitudes and actions are not the same. For instance, I'm fully aware that this week, while the United States officially recognizes Thanksgiving, bestowing upon it as a national holiday, for indigenous peoples across the continent is a national day of mourning. I'm also aware that long before descendants of pilgrims came up with the thanks first Thanksgiving myth, Thanksgiving was already being celebrated in Britain, but with prayers and fasting, not gorging and football. And it's not only Thanksgiving, but Christmas, too. Just like we know driving cars is bad for the planet, but we still prefer the convenience of getting around no matter the cost. That single-use plastics are not recyclable, but we put them in the recycling bin anyway. Just like we know smoking is bad for us, but keep smoking, despite the warnings on the packages. That eating meat is not healthy, but we eat it even more during the holidays when we celebrate. Just as drinking is not good for our liver, but in an attempt to feel better, we actually drink the stuff that may be poisoning, if not killing us. Like all of that and so much more, we must recognize deep down in ourselves that these holidays are a disaster for our own physical well-being and the planet's, as we often overindulge at this time of year, every year. Especially after the recent failed UN climate change talks, we should be increasingly aware that the holidays are not good for the planet, as every holiday in the United States is so commercialized and dependent upon hyperconsumption. Yet I still enjoy celebrating the holidays with family and friends. It's one of the very few times every year that we actually have the time to get together. On Patreon last week, no, I did not declare a war 
on Christmas or any of the holidays, but I did suggest a ceasefire when it comes to what we are celebrating, why we are celebrating, and how we celebrate it. Because, at least for me, when it comes to the holidays, I'm definitely suffering from cognitive dissonance. But during a pandemic that was likely released by increasing human encroachment on the natural world in league with globalization and climate change caused by burning fossil fuels, which are the engine of industrial and post-industrial capitalism, it's likely we are all suffering from some degree of cognitive dissonance, if we recognize it or not. And if we don't recognize it, then we are likely in a deep state of denialism. Who knows? Maybe the disconnect between our beliefs and behaviors is what's behind the global epidemic of depression that we were suffering from long before the first case of COVID-19 was ever found. We also shared a classic interview that is currently unavailable online other than on Patreon, an interview we did back in September of 2006 with Moaz Mbeg, author of Enemy Combatant, My Imprisonment at Guantanamo, Bagram, and Kandahar. Moazam had been held by the U.S. military for more than three years before being released without charge in January of 2005. His memoir was the first published account by a Guantanamo detainee of life inside the infamous prison. So only, let's see, about 20 months after he was released from uh, Guantanamo, we had Moazam on the show. We did an interview with him. We tried to circulate it through all of local Chicago media to see if anybody wanted to pick it up. We didn't even ask for any kind of accreditation. Nobody picked it up. That's why this is not the media. This is hell. But you can hear all of that right now by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. So we have this uh, scheduling note. It's kind of weird. You might want to write this down. This week, as we are taking Friday off for the holiday, the Patreon podcast happens at 10 a.m. Wednesday morning instead of our regularly scheduled Friday morning Patreon podcast, which means here at thisishell.com we are only doing shows on Monday and Tuesday this week, today and tomorrow, live at 10 a.m. as always and streaming at thisishell.com shortly after. To make all this even more complicated after the holiday, we return next week, not on Monday, but on Tuesday, November 30th, and we will be streaming live next week on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday with the Patreon podcast back on Friday morning. So this week you can hear us Monday and Tuesday here at thisishell.com and Wednesday at patreon.com slash thisishell. And then next week we return November, Tuesday, November 30th with shows also on Wednesday and Thursday and our Patreon podcast back in its regularly scheduled Friday morning time slot. We'll return to our normal Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday schedule with Patreon on Friday the following week. See, I told you it was complicated and I apologize for that. Coming up, an introduction into Afro-Indigeneity. We will also have this week in Rotten History some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what jobs are you not applying for? What jobs are you not applying for? We'll also tell you about an opportunity where you too can become a crew member here on This Is Hell. And I have a few remarks on the ruling in the Kyle Rittenhouse case that will likely sound very familiar if you are a regular listener of the show. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Here in the United States, the connection between indigenous people and descendants of enslaved Africans are often seen as two very distinct groups with differing self-interests, having little to nothing in common. In reality, the exploitation of Africans and the dispossession of indigenous land are key to the founding of the United States. In fact, according to today's guest, the so-called founding fathers put that exploitation and dispossession right in the founding papers. Here to help us have a better understanding of the shared past and present of indigenous and those of African descent in the United States 
Kyle T. Mays is author of An Afro-Indigenous History of the United States. Welcome to This Is Hell, Kyle. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be on. You can follow Kyle on Twitter at Mays underscore Kyle, and you can find out more about Kyle at his website, kyle-mays.com. So you quote Jack D. Forbes, who is Powhatan Renape and Lenap, and co-founder of Deganawada Quetzalcoatl University, which was founded in 1971 and was one of the first six tribal colleges and universities in the United States and the first in California. Forbes said Mm -hmm. thousands of volumes have been written about the historical and social relations existing between Europeans and the native peoples of the Americans, Americas and between Europeans and Africans. But relations between Native Americans and Africans have been sadly neglected. The entire Afro-Native American cultural exchange and contact experience is a fascinating and significant subject, but one largely obscured by a focus upon European activity and European colonial relations with peripheral subject peoples. To you, what explains why relations between Native peoples and those of African descent have been neglected? Why in the, um, the popular conventional imagination, if you will, are Indigenous and Africans so disconnected? Well, I think there are really two large explanations. One, uh, the problem of European imperialism and, and colonialism and capitalism and all of those terrible things uh, certainly impacted Black and Native peoples uh, throughout in the Americas negatively, right? And so if we look at each group separately, we'll say, well, those people came to colonize uh, Indigenous peoples, uh, commit genocide, et cetera. And then they brought over uh, people of African descent to exploit them, of course, on indigenous land. And historians for a long time have written about those things very separately. However, I think Jack Forbes' point is to say, uh, how has US democracy developed, right? And so for me, as I argue in an Afro-Indigenous history of the United States, the very idea of democracy, whether we wanna include capitalism, Um, and settler colonialism underneath that idea developed through the dispossession of indigenous peoples and Africans. And so it's much easier to talk about these things separately. Uh, And, you know, natives and black scholars for a long time have done that with a few exceptions, especially uh, historian Taya Miles. Uh, But it's easy to do that when you don't want to consider that white supremacy and settler colonialism and capitalism are interrelated or interlinked. And so what I'm trying to do in this book is to say that both capitalism or the exploitation of black people and the certainly the ongoing exploitation and the uh, genocide uh, and dispossession of indigenous peoples continues, uh, but they're very much linked in particular ways in the creation of the United States. But as you point out, you write that the myths that exist about Afro-Indigenous histories and peoples, including the myth that there are very few reasons to compare Black and Indigenous peoples' experiences in the United States. You even give the example of the late Patrick Wolf's 2016 book, Traces of History, Elementary Structures of Race, and how, quote, the Australian anthropologist and ethnographer traces how white settlers reproduce different forms of colonialism and hierarchies in settler societies such as Australia and the United States. And you quote Wolf writing, a relationship premised on the exploitation of enslaved labor requires the continual reproduction of its human providers. By contrast, a relationship premised on the evacuation of native people's territory requires that the peoples who originally occupied it 
should never be allowed back. If Africans were targeted for slavery and Native people were targeted with, as Wolf calls it, evacuation, does that make the Native and, and African experience inherently different? After all, the goal was to have fewer indigenous people while those who enslaved people wanted them to reproduce in chattel slavery. Well, yes. Um, and I think Wolf, what Wolf does there is he erases the indigenous roots of the uh, Africans forced to, who were kidnapped and forced to come to the Americas. And so what I, why I use uh, Patrick Wolf's argument or also the anthropologist Mahmoud Mamdani, a Ugandan scholar, um, utilize the same sort of logic in their approach to understanding history. And so what I say is, are the people who were forced and kidnapped to kidnap from the African continent, were those not indigenous peoples? And I'm not saying that today's black Americans are indigenous because we don't want to perpetuate any race, the experiences of uh, indigenous peoples here. But at that particular point in history, those peoples did not lose their idea of themselves, their traditions, their cultures, their languages, et cetera. Uh, and so this is why I think is a, it's a historical fallacy by people like Patrick Wolf to completely erase the indigenous cultures of people in African descent kidnapped uh, by Europeans and forced to come and work in the Americas. You mentioned Mahmoud Mandani. He's uh, been on our show a few times, and we recently uh, played an interview from the aughts with him about what was taking place in Darfur, which was not being reported anywhere else. He was really an amazing guest. Uh, you write that one might surmise that there is no need to find alliances in the fight for social justice to end anti-blackness and indigenous erasure. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The myth, then, as you see it, is that indigenous have no interest in the rights of those of African descent and those of African descent have no interest in fighting for the rights of the indigenous. By extension, do you think that myth enforces an idea that nobody is interested in fighting for the rights of anyone but people who identify exactly like themselves? Because that makes fighting for social justice seem, first and foremost, selfish. Yeah, so this the idea comes uh, very early in the early 20th century, but I, I start with Vine Deloria Jr., who is a uh, prominent Standing Rock Sioux intellectual and writer from uh, the mid to late 20th century. Um, and, and he was writing a lot, and especially the book Custer Die Fear Sins, an Indian Manifesto, published in 1969. And he has a chapter on the red and the black. And what Deloria essentially says here is that Black people are fighting for civil rights, which of course ignores black radicals. We can get into that later. And native peoples are fighting for treaty rights, which is very different from the uh, experiences of other uh, racialized, minoritized peoples in the US. That is, they have a treaty relationship with the US government. And so from Deloria, countless uh, activists or some activists uh, from the late 1960s onward um, scholars continue to imagine that these things have nothing uh, to, they have nothing in common. And so someone like Stokely Carmichael, who would change his name to Kwame Ture and coined the term black power in 1966, saw that there is very much in, uh, a commonality between the struggles of black peoples throughout the African diaspora and indigenous peoples. However, uh, Carmichael was one of the few people who acknowledged that this is not black people's land, but this is indigenous land. 
And from there, any discussions of uh, anti-colonial struggle, anti-capitalist struggle must center indigenous land and voices in that particular struggle, which is why uh, someone like Carmichael becomes important in understanding uh, how these connections and these co-liberations can actually take place. But Black Lives activists protesting at Standing Rock, they were seen by some as an encouraging breakthrough moment. And yeah, that disparate movements were finding common ground for the very first time. That was how a lot of places were reporting it. What do we miss in understanding the fight for indigenous rights and black lives when we see Standing Rock as an encouraging breakthrough moment and not a continuing legacy of cooperation in the disruption of democracy? Well, for me, uh, Black, the Black Lives Matter standing in solidarity with uh, the Standing Rock Sioux in their defense against the Dakota Access Pipeline represents a, a sort of culmination of a longer lineage of Black radicals engaging in active solidarity with Indigenous peoples. Um, and it was so a lot, I think the contemporary media sort of ignored this longer history, although I think it's more so being uh, erased in a particular way. Because, you know, the powers that be often don't want to acknowledge that there there have been uh, ways that Black and Native peoples found common ground to understand their own condition and oppression. And so I'm at least heartened by the fact uh, in the contemporary moment, whether it's Black and Indigenous activists in Oakland um, and Washington State or um, in Detroit, who come together and try to find common ground around issues, whether that's water rights, whether that's uh, the land current land back movement. So I'm very much heartened by the acts of solidarity. I know, although it'll take work, certainly that continue well into the present. So if we were all taught at a young age that the United States power and wealth comes from stealing land from the indigenous and kidnapping and enslaving Africans, not because of some exceptional political system. How do you think the United States would be understood differently? Is understanding that land theft and slavery are the foundations of the United States an existential threat to the United States? Well, um, I think, especially for young children, it would tell them that, one, the U.S. is not an exceptional place in the world. Uh, it's never really been a uh, democracy for oppressed peoples, especially if it's built on the exploitation and the dispossession of peoples. So that's one. And two, um, I'm pessimistic that it would happen, but if children could learn that this particular system has not been designed to afford uh, a better life or to uh, build on the full humanity of peoples, then I think they would begin to question other things about the government, about U.S. democracy, about things like Independence Day, of course, Thanksgiving. Uh, and I think it would be a good thing to create young people who want to challenge and think critically about the country in which they live, which they live, which is based on land theft. And if you center land and we find ways to continue it, because I do think Native peoples uh, in addition to the solidarity, African Americans need, you know, white comrades, et cetera, working in solidarity to return land. And if there were a group of young people who under who are taught the, about the destruction that happened and continues to happen to indigenous peoples, I think that would be for the better. Could the U.S. survive such a reckoning with its past? 
No, <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, it, because people don't often want to say it. And I've had weird instances with uh, white folks, even, you know, leftist white people when I mentioned returning land. And often the response is either cool, let's do it. Or, well, my family has lived here for a long time and where would we go? And I don't think that's even the right approach or question to have when you're talking about returning land. It's, it, it's like a centering of the white self or whiteness when, when those conversations come up. And I, I think that's uh, belittling the real genocide that has happened to Native peoples. You point out that the founding fathers have built debts that they or contemporary white Americans will never be able to pay off. What are those debts and how can they be paid off? Can they be paid off with reparations? No. I, so the I say this carefully, so I'm not opposed to reparations per se, right? But I do wonder, especially reparations for African-Americans in particular, do we really want reparations under capitalism? And I think that's a question that's rarely a part of the conversation on reparations. So in other words, my question is, do you want reparation or simply money or the land of indigenous peoples uh, to be given to African-Americans or do you want justice? Right. And if you want justice, then we'd have to say we need to radically transform and think about how we're living uh, in relationship to indigenous peoples. And finally, I don't I think it's uh, difficult to have a conversation around reparations without uh, without returning land to native peoples. Again, if we center land and, and also it would require native peoples, whatever uh, the nations and their protocols for incorporating, whether that's making new treaties, relationships, et cetera, with oppressed peoples, whether it's black peoples um, in the U.S. or whether that's peoples who are forced to come to the U.S. because of the U.S.'s neoliberal policies in a so-called, for instance, war on drugs, right? And creating new relationships and how they would incorporate guests onto their land. And I think that would go a long way into asserting uh, tribal and indigenous sovereignty. So do you think that reparations, any kind of you know, monetary comp- uh, compensation, do you think that distracts us from or obscures a conversation on having a just response to what has happened to African-Americans as well as indigenous? Yes. I mean, in, in, um, uh, in Evanston, Illinois, you know, there's been talks of, I think loans or something like that for discrimination on Asheville, North Carolina, but it's always around building wealth and building wealth or black capitalism whatever you want to call it, is not going to liberate and create justice for for Black, Indigenous, or any poor working class people. And so I don't see it happening. You write, though, other forms of exploitation have occurred since the original dispossession and enslavement, such as the ever-growing U.S. military-industrial complex, which has emerged in nearly every part of the world. These two structures together formed modern capitalism. So does capitalism still try to reproduce land theft and slavery in order to find success, even to this day? Absolutely. Um, So, I mean, the U.S. continues 
building pipelines and what are those pipelines for for oil in order to so some capitalists can make money right but often they're going through uh, whether that's the flint water crisis that happened or pipelines throughout michigan that's in in um uh, the dakotas it's always going through some sort of tribal land or at least adjacent or near tribal land and there's always some water source so it's fundamentally you have to control land and if you return land those capitalists would lose all sorts of money i think bill gates for instance is one of the largest uh, landowners right and a lot of it is is farmland cattle but this is not indigenous people's land that and they don't want to return that to native peoples because then they would lose a certain amount of capital we are speaking with Kyle T. Mays, author of An Afro-Indigenous History of the United States. You can follow Kyle on Twitter at Mays underscore Kyle, and you can find out more about Kyle at his website, kyle-mays.com. You uh, point to the work of a past guest on our show when you write Andre Sersende's award-winning book, The Other Slavery. In it, he argues that Europeans enslaved between two and a half million to five million indigenous peoples. Although indigenous enslavement did not measure in scale to African enslavement, as Sersende argues, it shared with the other systems at least four features. And you then quote Sersende writing, forcible removal of the victims from one place to another, inability to leave the workplace, violence or threat of violence to compel them to work, and nominal or no pay. Now, shortly after I had that interview with Andres back in 2016, I spoke with a very, very liberal history instructor. When I explained Andres' work, they were very upset in comparing the slavery of indigenous to the slavery of Africans in the United States. Now, I can't know and I don't want to speculate as to why that would upset them so much, but considering slavery of Africans was on a much larger scale than that of the indigenous, is it fair to compare the two when one is understood as far more systemic or institutional than the other? Well, I think often with issues around uh, whether it's, you know, the enslavement of people of African descent or the dispossession um, and land theft that happened to native peoples and also the enslavement. So people, especially teaching history, like to see, uh, the the original sin, as it will, of the U.S. as being African enslavement. And I understand that. And of course, it is foundational. But settler colonialism or the uh, dispossession of indigenous peoples, and I, I would consider the meta narratives created that suggest that native peoples all live on reservations or that they exist only in the past, or they're just, just a few who actually live, those narratives continue the idea of indigenous uh, erasure. And so when you compare something like indigenous enslavement to African enslavement, uh, people don't want to place those side by side because it's either native peoples are gone, and therefore you know it was a tragedy, but it's no longer relevant to the teaching of history and contemporary politics. And so I think you have to compare them in order to understand just how uh, pervasive um, uh, white supremacy has been to the creation of the United States. I mean, classic example, during the Civil War, when the uh, people of African descent, you know, are fighting for their own freedom, uh, during the Civil War from 1861 to 1865, the U.S. through Abraham Lincoln 
as he is also expanding out west, right? So they're doing these two things at the same time. Black people are fighting for their freedom, and then white supremacy creeps on over out west uh, to uh, wage war and genocide against indigenous peoples. So the U.S. military has always played a role in this. And for me, this is why we have to understand both of these. It's not to displace one over the other, but it's to better understand how white supremacy uh, is an overarching phenomenon that impacts people at the same time. You cite another past guest on our show and the writing we discussed when you mentioned historian Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz's award-winning 2014 book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States. Roxanne writes, the history of the United States is a history of settler colonialism, the founding of a state based on the ideology of white supremacy and the widespread practice of African slavery and a policy of genocide and land theft. You add, importantly, Dunbar-Ortiz's definition of settler colonialism carefully includes the enslavement of Africans as one of the two parallel projects in the formation of the United States. In your opinion, by your assessment, were those parallel projects not only intentional, but premeditated? Was the plan all along to steal land and enslave people and build a powerful and wealthy nation by doing so? I don't know if it was uh, premeditated per se, but it certainly became a part of the plan. So in reading anything around the Federalist Papers, uh, important documents, uh, whether it's the Constitution, they were always the founders were always concerned about how do we continue expanding land, and we're a very young nation, and how do we keep Black and Indigenous peoples separated in a particular way, because they were not. Uh, it's always presupposed uh, that democracy was just going to flourish, but no, they were very much terrified about the possibilities of Black and Indigenous liberation. And so they began to systematically, whether it's black codes uh, to restrict the movement of black peoples or uh, creating more treaties for indigenous uh, nations so the U.S. So it could continue expanding. So it's really about social controlling uh, native peoples as well as black people. So it became a foundational part of U.S. law and policy, certainly. You write that some might believe that black people seeking belonging in the U.S. nation state and showing patriotism is an expression of some blind allegiance to the democratic project or worse, to whiteness. Do signs or acts of patriotism to the United States always reflect a blind allegiance, a devotion and support to whiteness, whether that's recognized as not or not by the person who is reflecting that patriotism? You know, I, patriotism is fascinating. Um, and I understand, you know, I also have family, whether I'm my black or indigenous side who served them in the military. Um, I don't personally, uh, I, I don't personally support, um, imperialism. And so any adventures, uh, that happen around the world, I am against because I don't think you should be occupying other people's countries or meddling or nor should you have the biggest military footprint around the world, nor should you be spent spending billions and trillions of dollars of our tax money. Uh, therefore, when um, black and native peoples are actively celebrating patriotism, it does bother me to the extent I'm like, so the next follow up question is, do you support imperialism? Uh, do you support 
uh, the notion that Black and Indigenous peoples, um, or, or rather the whole project of the U.S. Democratic Project and whiteness, do we want something beyond U.S. democracy? And I'm, you know, really looking forward, hopefully, to the aftermath of settler colonialism and white supremacy, because those things have been a detriment to Black, Indigenous, and oppressed peoples. You write that if you're a non-Black or non-Indigenous person, keep in mind, we just want freedom. We don't want to die at the hands of police brutality. We are tired of living in a state of fear because we don't belong. How dependent is the United States, as it exists today, on Indigenous and African people not having a sense of belonging? Oh, I think it's. I think it remains foundational uh, to the United States' identity. And so... You know, whether we're talking about the representation, I remember people still um, really looking forward to the Obama presidency. And I always like to remind people, representation won't save you. It won't save us from uh, the continued genocide and violence uh, and white supremacy that Black and Indigenous people experience. So, no, I don't don't think... uh, whether we get more representation or whether we're patriotic or what have you, those things will fundamentally create more freedom. Um, And I'm reminded by the Black American uh, songstress Nina Simone when someone asked her, what does freedom mean to her? And she said, freedom is no fear. And that is living to your fullest humanity. And again, in the aftermath of settler colonialism and white supremacy. So you write about this controversy over the freedmen of the five nations. Month after writing your section on the freedmen of the five nations, a controversial relationship between indigenous and descendants of those they enslaved, a decision was finally made on whether the freedmen would get tribal citizenship or not. But we'll get to how this eventually played out in February of this year in a moment. So let's not spoil what eventually happened until we walk listeners through the controversy and what it means for Native sovereignty. You write W.E.B. Du Bois asked in his 1903 classic, The Souls of Black Folks, how does it feel to be a problem? And you add a better question might be, how does one become a problem in the first place? This is the first question that the freedmen of the five tribes are asking today. To offer a brief summary of the freedmen, they are connected to the five tribes, Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Creek, and Seminole. They are the descendants of Africans and mixed Afro-Indigenous peoples who were enslaved by the five tribes during the 19th century. When the U.S. government removed the tribes during the 19th century to Indian Territory, present-day Oklahoma, the freedmen remained under the tribe's control. So how were the freedmen determined to be a problem to the five tribes? Well, it all, I mean, you know, they enslaved them, of course, as mentioned in the 19th century, but they really, really became a problem um, in the 1866 treaty uh, between the U.S. and uh, the five tribes. And so uh, some of the factions of the five tribes fought on behalf of the Confederacy uh, because they felt like they could, they were able to be able, they would be able to keep their land if they worked on behalf and fought against the Union with the Confederacy. And so after the Union uh, won the Civil War, they, you know, whether we want someone to say force or what have you, um, made the, the five tribes sign this particular treaty. And one of the stipulations was that they would have to uh, make citizens and end slavery and make citizens uh, or offer citizenship to 
uh, the freedmen, et cetera. And for a long time, the fire tribes have not been willing to do so. And, you know, we can talk about all sorts of complications or tribal sovereignty, but they really haven't wanted to do it because of anti-Blackness. And that's really it. And when we say honor the treaties, honor the treaties then and include the freedmen, uh, those Afro-Indigenous peoples as a part of your tribal nation. And it should really be that simple, but of course it has not been over time. And you point out that as Afro-Indigenous people and Black people know all too well race and racism are facts of our lives, we can't get out of this hell and neither can any non-Black people. Anti-Blackness and anti-Indigenousness are not so different as to say one is worse than the other. But in this case, there's a clear case of injustice. Why can't anyone, no matter their race, escape anti-Blackness? Again, because it's it's been foundational to the development of the U.S., as well as anti-Nativeness. And I think the other component is um, the country's wealth was built off of these things. And so, you know, whether it's a military industrial complex, which was based off of the campaigns of genocide uh, committed against indigenous peoples, uh, those things continue and persist well into the present. And whether it's the issue around mascots or the or how people view black people police brutality etc those things persist whether it's in the media and literature and books it's all around us and until we can collectively come to terms around how pervasive uh, these acts of violence and perspectives are in the world um, within the u.s but it's also pretty global then when we do that, I hope that we can come to some sort of agreement that we need to change those material conditions that lead to those representations. You write that I support the freedmen across all five tribes receiving their due citizenship. It is the right thing to do. Those tribes enslaved them, and they gave their ancestors for creating the condition of freedmen bondage, a harm that cannot be properly repaid. For those who were not enslaved but are now hardly citizens because of their blackness, the five tribes owe them something too. The scarlet letter of freedmen, their blackness, is now associated with their citizenship. The freedmen want to be citizens of the nation that enslaved them, that nation being those of the five tribes. Are the freedmen currently, what's their status? Are they currently citizens in the United States with all the rights and privileges that come with that citizenship? Do they have any more or less rights as non-citizens of the five tribes? I'm just trying to determine how they situate themselves within the five tribes. Yeah. So um, the Cherokee Nation has recently changed some legislation to allow for uh, people, the the freedmen to serve on tribal council. So Maryland Band is one of the first um, freedmen to be able to serve uh, in, in government in a particular way. But for the others, there's still uh, some are citizens and some are not. And, and so there's still some sort of second class citizenship around the particular rights that they have. Some might restrict voting rights. Uh, some are not citizens, even though it's very clear that their ancestors uh, are on particular uh, roles and documents that said that they um, were indigenous. So it's it's a sticky situation around citizenship. But in general, I would say it's mostly 
forms of second class uh, citizenship, even within the tribal nations, the five tribes. And you're right about some of the treaties that were signed with the five tribes. And this is, again, history that I was unaware of. You write the 1791 Treaty of Holston between the United States government and the Cherokee Nation bears the signature of a person named Sanita, I guess, or slave catcher. I'm uncertain who this person was, you write, but their name represented their job to catch slaves. It is also important to remind people that the U.S. government created treaties with some tribal nations and explicitly stated to the, in them that those nations must return enslaved Africans. So was the enslavement or re-enslavement of the freedmen of the five tribes imposed upon the five tribes forced by treaty? And if so, does that alleviate any responsibility that the five tribes may have to the freedmen and their descendants because it was forced upon them? No, I mean, well, one, some of them were already attempting to catch enslaved. And what the treaty actually says, so like the treaty uh, of 1823 with the Seminole Nation, it says we will reimburse you, that the United States will reimburse uh, the Seminole Nation for returning slaves, for any costs that they took to capture them, that they would reimburse them. And so, yes, while the treaty might be a form of coercion, I don't think we can let them off the hook for that either, because, again, some of them were uh, already a part of that particular tribal nation, and I think um, they should apologize and offer some compensation, the compensation especially being citizenship, to those who, the, who are the descendants of that particular nation. So, uh, and, and reckoning with that past as well. You write the five tribes all enslaved Africans to demonstrate that they were quote unquote civilized. Who were they trying to prove their civility to? White America. Why? To halt the U.S. from encroaching further on their land. So, I, I know this is a weird question, but why did being civilized mean owning slaves to white culture and society? What did owning slaves mean? What did it mean about the slaveholder? Well, uh, you know, of course, there were a large degrees and scale of who owned slaves. So someone, it could even be a poor white Southerner, would have maybe one uh, enslaved African, or, you know, someone with a, uh, we'll call it a mega plantation, could have 500 enslaved Africans on uh, being exploited on the land. So, but for what it meant, was a, a status symbol, right? So a status of wealth because you are able to acquire property. And it's difficult to say that, but, but again, that's how people of African descent who are enslaved were considered, they were considered property. And so if you have enslaved peoples uh, being exploited for labor, then you have a certain status of whiteness uh, and dominance within a developing United States. So it was an important thing for many white Americans, and unfortunately, across class lines during the time period. You mentioned how the current dilemma involves a web of interest for tribes, freed men and the federal government, and they go something like this. The five tribes maintain that it is an incursion on their sovereignty for the U.S. to force them to include the freed men as citizens, and that the U.S. forced them to sign those treaties. The freed men believe that the five tribes should simply honor the treaty that they signed with the U.S. back in 1866. The U.S. government, led by black congresspeople, believe that the uh, five tribes' exclusion of the freedmen is simply an act of anti-blackness. All three of these perspectives are true. So 
it is an incursion, incursion on sovereignty. The five tribes should recognize the original treaty, and their unwillingness to do so is fueled by anti-blackness. But why should the five tribes recognize any treaty? Why should any indigenous people recognize any treaty signed with the United States that was signed under duress, the duress of a threat of potential gen- genocide? Why should the United States impose upon, anti- uh, impose upon indigenous people our beliefs when it comes to race even any opposition we may have to anti-blackness. Yeah, so this is, uh, I really have two answers to that. So in the interim, in the meantime, uh, to make sure that black, uh, the freedmen, Afro-Indigenous peoples are afforded citizenship so they can apply for housing, grants, et cetera. So it's a very practical thing for that to do. Uh, and while I don't in general agree with the intrusion of the US government on tribal sovereignty, but on the other hand, um, if we're to really consider that tribal sovereignty as a rejection of uh, the United States' supremacy uh, and colonization over them, then in some ways when you know very liberal Indigenous peoples, you know, are saying out of the treaties, et cetera. It can it can really become a just a liberal approach to a more radical form of tribal sovereignty, right? Because they're legitimizing the United States government. And if we really want to consider a just radical feature outside of white supremacy and colonialism, we also have to you know really challenge those within our communities who, who simply say honor the treaties without also tying that to a form of anti-capitalist thought and action. Uh, And so when you say out of the treaty, I think for many, it could just be a form of liberalism, honestly, which is difficult to say, but I I think it's worth uh, putting it out there in in the discourse. Yeah, and I think it's a very good point to make, too. You write that months after writing the section on the freedmen of the five tribes, the Cherokee Nation did the right thing. On February 22, 2021, the Cherokee Nation Supreme Court ruled that the tribe's constitution remove the phrase by blood so that the freedmen could be enrolled as citizens. I'm glad they're doing this. It is one step in the right direction. I hope the other four tribes do the same. So, Kyle, why now? Why do you think the Cherokee Nation finally decided to offer full citizenship to the freed freed men? Does it have anything to do with possibly, I don't know, maybe an affinity with the Black Lives Movement? Exactly. I mean, uh, it's it's simply a response to the issue around Black Lives Matter, and it was a uh, and I an astute idea to do so now because it's sort of you know you know Black Lives Matter doesn't always have, and it certainly support has gone down amongst white Americans. And I'm not really sure what the data says or polling data says for native peoples, but um, it it was just a political opportunistic moment. Um, For the freedmen, I'm happy uh, in the Cherokee Nation that it was dropped, but um, it, it was mostly opportunistic, I think. Just a few more questions for you. You point out that the twin oppressions of anti-blackness and settler colonialism have been a central site through which racial and gender formations have occurred in the United States. Moreover, it demonstrates how black and indigenous peoples, in spite of presumed differences, that is the different ways they were treated by the settler state, have sought solidarity with each other. They have always sought to disrupt, dismantle, and reimagine U.S. democracy. They have even sought to radically transform how the society operates. So how important is it for those who do want to reimagine democracy in the United States, 
no matter their race or ethnicity or identity in any way, to join with those indigenous people and people of African descent who are working together to disrupt and dismantle what currently is U.S. democracy. Because we've had a lot of guests come on the show and say, well, if you are want to know about how to fight for liberation, how to fight for freedom, you should look to the work of black feminists, especially gay or trans black feminists, because they're the mm-hmm. people who are more likely, uh, most likely oppressed. So how important is it to for those of us who want to reimagine democracy in the United States to join with indigenous and people of African descent in that project? To me, I think it's, I think it's really essential, right? And so um, I understand people might have particular identities, affinities, et cetera. But for me, it's, it's about the issues. And so whether it's an issue around water rights, we all need clean water. Whether it's an issue around police brutality, while, uh, I mean, you know, the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, decision should be a wake up call to all sorts of uh, non black and non indigenous uh, activists that one, the justice system, which is, you know, based on white supremacy, is, is not going to help you or save you either. Uh, and so I think centering black and indigenous peoples and making sure and decentering whiteness in, in a particular way is important. Um, so I would encourage folks to form reading groups, study groups, um, you know, certainly you need action, but you still have to read and know what the problems are. Uh, and, and I encourage all peoples, regardless of race, creed, religion, what have you, to be able to do so to, you know, create some forms of uh, ideological dialogue for the better of all of us. You brought up the Rittenhouse verdict, and, uh, you know, one of the things that I heard over the weekend, I quickly turned away from Fox News as fast as I could. But before (laughs) I could do that, I did hear people saying this is not an act of a justice system reflecting white supremacy because Kyle Rittenhouse is white, as were the victims of his shooting. Why do you see that as an act of white supremacy when the victims and the shooter were both white? Because white supremacy isn't just about one's race, it's about how violence occurs. So white supremacy and people fighting and what were people protesting on behalf of black lives here. And so a white supremacist system, uh, while it knows race, if you're even uh, advocating for on behalf of black or brown or indigenous peoples or, or, or really I should say, class oppression, then that system is going to retaliate. And for those who commit that, those acts of violence, they will not uh, be held accountable in any way, even though I don't personally believe in, in prisons as a form of um, reform anyways, but it's not going to work for you. So it's still white supremacy working as it should work. Two more questions. I promise. That's it. You write, I want you, dear reader, to pick up this book and acquaint yourself with new characters and histories to think differently about well-known figures and old documents and do either continue dreaming and building a world outside of white supremacy and settler colonialism or begin thinking about it. We have to dream and build at the same time. We will win. We must. Should we then be building parallel societies outside white supremacy and settler colonialism and can such a society exist along the united alongside the united states would the u.s allow it uh no the u.s will not allow it but we have to try to do so anyway i mean in even small steps um building forms of collective ownership as best as we can um in 
in, in whether an urban rural reservation um, creating forms of cooperative living, whether that's shared resources as best as we can. And again, like it's easy to criticize and critique and say the system has to go. But at the same time, we're doing that. And I do hope uh, that this empire crumbles at some point. We have to have the infrastructure to, to be able to move into uh, as we go forward. If not, you know, we're going to be scrambling in this world free of white supremacy and colonialism. One last question for you, Kyle. We have been speaking with Kyle T. Mays, author of An Afro-Indigenous History of the United States. He is also author of Hip Hop Beats, Indigenous Rhymes, Modernity and Hip Hop in Indigenous North America, which sounds absolutely fascinating. And I would love to have your Indigenous uh, playlist because I've been watching a lot of The Ox lately and I really would like to see what you have. Uh, I love Han Han, by the way. You can follow Kyle on Twitter at Mays underscore Kyle. You can find out more about Kyle at his website, kyle-mays.com. One last question for you, Kyle, and I, I promise, as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question you may hate to, we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. You start your author's note by stating that you are writing this book for at least three reasons. First, because of my personal identity. I'm black in Saginaw, Chippewa. Second, if I am to imagine a new world, one that brings an end to a world that hates black people and reproduces anti-blackness and white supremacy, a world that erases indigenous people and reproduces their dispossession through settler colonialism, I intend to tell some histories that have been ignored at best or made invisible at worst. Third, there is a deeply intellectual component rooted in my inner interactions in graduate school. So my question to you, Kyle, is can there be an end to a world that hates black people and reproduces anti-blackness and white supremacy and the end of a world that erases indigenous people and reproduces their dispossession through settler colonialism without challenging, if not ending, capitalism? No, I mean, the the this life has to be anti-colonial and anti-capitalist for us to get to the world where we want to go. Kyle, I cannot thank you enough. This is a fascinating topic. It's not something that we've discussed on our show before. We've talked about uh, Afro-Colombian. We've talked about Afro-Cuban culture. and We've never got around to, for whatever reason, Afro-Indigenous culture here in the United States. So thank you so much for being on our show. It really is a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Very much appreciate it and would love to be back. All right. That means I'm going to annoy you in the future, so be prepared for it. All All right. right. Take care. You are listening to God's Favorite Radio Show. Prove me wrong. This is hell. And if what you just heard from Kyle Mays on what it means to be Afro-Indigenous, if that made you in some way enlightened, deprogramming yourself from a previously held belief or understanding, or made you feel like you actually learned something, or realized that yes, this really is hell, show your support by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks for all of your support. Jess, please remind us what is this week's question from hell, and tell us how some of our listeners are responding. This week's question from hell is, what job are you not applying for? What job are you not applying for? Uh, Dank O says, Steve Bannon's valet. (laughs) (laughs) Seth E., Chair of the Department of Entrepreneurial Excellence at the University of Austin. <laughs> Boy, those University of Austin jokes are really coming in hot and heavy. <laughs> um, 
Neil C. Britney Spears, money manager. <laughs> Wait, are you uh, applying for graduate school at University of Boston? No, no I'm not. <laughs> Just checking. Um, uh, Tynan S., the CEO of Antifa. <laughs> that is a good one. Um, and the last one for today, Joel G., um, one of the jobs David Graeber wrote about. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the question from Al is, what job are you not applying for? What job are you not applying for? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail gets their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. All the stuff is currently available at thisishell.com when you click on support. And it all makes really great stocking stuffers. And you'll need a pretty big stocking for some of it. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. Or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, this week in Rotten History. November 23rd, 1887, 134 years ago tomorrow, Tuesday, in Thibodeau, Louisiana, striking sugarcane workers were killed by state militia and white supremacist vigilantes in an explosion of violence. In the 22 and a half years since the U.S. Civil War and the abolition of slavery, work conditions had changed little for the sugarcane workers. A reminder that the end of slavery was not the end of slavery. Though technically free, supposed former slaves were still in a form of bondage. Many lived in the same shacks as had under slavery. They worked in gangs for long hours and were paid not in money but in scrip paper coupons that are redeemable only at plantation-owned stores that sold the necessities of life at exorbitant prices. Company towns, which are a form of bondage, obviously, just ask the Pullman workers. For years, the workers had attempted strikes and the big planters had responded with sporadic violence. But now the increasingly powerful national union known as the Knights of Labor, I know, it's a really scary name, was helping to organize a massive work stoppage exactly at the time of year when sugarcane had to be harvested before it spoiled. The town of Thibodeau became an epicenter of resistance where striking workers gathered and camped. Frantic at the prospect of losing their year's crop, Louisiana planters appealed to the state government, which sent militia to Thibodeau to break the strike. The state sent essentially the National Guard to break up the strike, siding with property over people as always. A declaration of martial law was quickly followed by a three-day massacre. <laughs> Jesus. Martial law followed by a massacre in which an estimated 50 to 60 African Americans were killed and hundreds wounded. So whenever you hear they're going to be declaring martial law, that means you can count on it. People of color are going to die. Among the dead were men, women, and children. As for the survivors, most were forced back to work with none of their demands met. Forced to work without without meeting any demands that does sound like a a lot like bondage others were forced off the plantations entirely the louisiana state government followed up with jim crow legislation that helps prevent sugarcane workers from organizing again until well into the 20th century i mean it's, it's almost as if labor organizing is such an effective response to bondage that corporations in the state wanted to do everything to make certain there's an uneven playing field against unionization I'm so glad we've moved beyond the idea of putting profits before people. Oh, wait. We haven't? Okay. In Rotten History, November 25th, 1970, 51 years ago this Thursday in New York City, a body found floating in the East River was confirmed to be that of the pioneering jazz improviser and band leader 
Albert Eiler, who had not been seen by anyone for several weeks. For years, Eiler had excited and confounded fans of the avant-garde free jazz scene with his ecstatic, uncompromising music, which drew as much from the marching band tradition as from blues, R&B, and early New Orleans music. And if that doesn't make you, you interested in Albert Eiler's work, I don't know what will. That is an odd combination. Marching band tradition as from blues, R&B, and early New Orleans jazz. Though Eiler found respect from artistic peers, especially his close friend John Coltrane. See? Aren't you interested? His music was viewed as controversial, even by the most adventurous jazz listeners and critics. Still, even more interesting. After recording several brilliant albums, which sold poorly during his lifetime, Eiler began to show signs of depression, paranoia, and erratic behavior. Eh, who doesn't? In his last years, he spoke of seeing elaborate spiritual visions and was seen wearing heavy winter clothing on hot summer days. It was mainly after his death, which was ruled a suicide, that Eiler's music grew in influence. One Chicago-based saxophonist, Mars Williams, now offers annual tribute concerts in which traditional Christmas carols are given the exuberant Eiler treatment. You can find out more about Mars Williams and Eiler Christmas, the music of Albert Eiler and the sounds of Christmas, at marswilliams.com slash Eiler dash Christmas. That's A-Y-L-E-R dash X-M-A-S. Or just go to MarsWilliams.com and click on Projects. Mars, by the way, was also the saxophonist for the Psychedelic Furs. Go figure. I saw the Psychedelic Furs once when Mars was not playing with them, and it was awful. Finally, in Rotten History, on November 25th, 1974, 47 years ago, again this Thursday, in a rural village near Birmingham, England, the 26-year-old British singer-songwriter Nick Drake was found dead in his bedroom at the home of his parents. And if you've never heard any Nick Drake music, go listen to the song Man in a Shed as soon as we're done. After a disappointing career in which his first three record albums had sold few copies and gone almost unnoticed, despite being amazing. Drake was suffering from serious depression, perhaps aggravated by heavy drug use. He had stopped work on a fourth album in London so that he could rest and recuperate at his childhood home in the country. Coroner attributed Drake's death to an overdose of an antidepressant, which had been prescribed for him. Only many years later did Drake's brooding, melancholy music find a wide audience, especially after his signature song, Pink Moon, was used in a 1999 television commercial for Volkswagen. To this day, un uncertainty remains as to whether Nick Drake died from an accidental overdose or an intentional act of suicide. Now that's rotten history, and this is hell. Jess, who do we have scheduled to be on tomorrow's show? And I want to hear you try to pronounce his last name. Um, I think I can pronounce it. All right. Uh, but first, I want to say brief. I wrote my master's thesis on Thibodeau, so I really, yeah, yeah. So I could say quite quite a bit about it. No kidding. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's yeah. have a discussion about it next time you're on. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, yeah. Okay, but on tomorrow's show, um, Tuesday, we'll be speaking with um, Alex Tumhambise. Yay! Yeah, I watched the video several <laughs> times. Um, and Emily Holden on uh, their report, No Power to Stop It. Um, optimism turns to frustration over East Africa Pipeline for Floodlight and The Guardian. And Jeff will be delivering a moment of truth. What's his moment about? Do you have it? Yes. Um, Jeff asks, 
Aside from the way things are, what do we really have to complain about? That's a good question. We are looking for new board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board, as Jess does and Richard does and Alex does, email me at chuck at com. If you would like to join us here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at com. We are looking for people who can run the board Anywhere from a couple, from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, with shows beginning at 10 a.m. Monday through Wednesday. However, we are very flexible, and if you can only do it a couple of times a month, we can work with your schedule. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. So if you want to do your own podcast, you could do it from here. And it's an easy job. It's You can learn in just a couple of training sessions, if not just one. And we actually pay our board ops a living wage. If you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. Of course, with this position, you need to live in the Chicago area. However, we are also seeking help from those of you who can work with us remotely. Stuff that can be done no matter if you live in London or Laos. You too can be part of the This Is Hell crew wherever you live. For instance, every time we post a show online and at our site, we include a poll quote, P-U-L-L, a poll quote, from the interview to give visitors a little taste of what they're about to listen to. Again, if you're interested in becoming a producer here on the show, uh, being a board operator, working with us remotely, or are interested in doing anything with us, email us at chuck at com. So, as you all know, Kyle Rittenhouse, who killed two people and permanently maimed another, was acquitted of all charges against him last week. That is, unless you live under a rock, and that life under a rock keeps looking more tempting every day. I was wondering if I could join you under that rock so I wouldn't have to be talking about this. Many were shocked at the outcome in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. However, if you listen to This Is Hell, you likely were not that surprised by the jury's ruling at all, especially if you've been listening to our taglines, which are far more than just mere branding cliches and sayings to throw in in interstitials. For instance, Rittenhouse proved property has more rights than people, at least in his worldview, and his worldview is upheld by the law in Wisconsin. Rittenhouse traveled an hour and a half to protect property from people, property that was not his, property he was not asked to protect, property that he did not stay and protect. Once that property seemed apparently protected, Rittenhouse ran into a group of protesters who he clearly cared less about than the property he was supposedly protecting. Some Rittenhouse supporters on the stairs outside the courtroom even suggested he went to Kenosha to stop all of the graffiti, which suggests that not only does property have more rights than people, but property has more rights than the free speech of graffiti. Then there's our horrible business model here at This Is Hell of people before profits. Clearly, in Wisconsin at least, profits are more protected by law than people. Property gets justice. People get killed. This is exactly what you should expect from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime. And the law appears to be that any protest is a risk to property, and therefore any risk to property is worthy of the death penalty and extrajudicial killings by gun-toting vigilantes in the streets. That, this just is not a surprise. This is hell. Thanks to our guest today, Kyle T. Mays, author of An Afro-Indigenous History of the United States. You can follow Kyle on Twitter at Mays underscore Kyle. And find out more about Kyle at his website, 
kyle-mays.com. Thanks to Jess Lipka for running the board today. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. This week's Hangover Cure is the perfect hangover cure, which apparently is a smoothie of coconut water, kale, celery, cucumber, arugula, also known as rocket in British? Who knew? And lemon juice. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>